Good morning. It's good to be together. It's good to see all of us in one room. We should do this again. We should do this again. And thanks for reading that passage. Did anybody gasp when they started seeing some of those names? She was warned before the fact. You know, just sound it out. No one will know how they are said anyway. That's probably true. Today is Pentecost Sunday. And if you were raised at all like me, uh, this time of the year, this event, this celebration was a little bit confusing, was a little bit mysterious, was a little bit unknown. And if you grew up in a church that was really protective of talking about the Spirit because it's so complex, um, then you may be thinking about Pentecost similar to me, which is a little bit like, hey, I know these guys got in a room together, I know this event happened, and I know it's significant, but I'm still looking to kind of engage why. And so today we're going to talk about Pentecost uh, in terms of why any of us should really care, why any of this really matters. Matters in our normal, ordinary, and everyday life. Matters on Monday. Matters on Tuesday. Why does it matter at all? Today we're going to talk a little bit about, well, we're going to talk about wind. We're going to talk about fire. And based on how long you're willing to stay, we might talk about some other things. (laughs) Uh, But first, some context. Context is pretty important when we're talking about this territory. Um, For example, I could tell you about this time that I was on the other side of town at church. Okay. Uh, At a church that also doubles as a swingers club on Friday nights. Okay. But the context of that story is really, really important. And so the context of this story that we're talking about is really, really important. And we're going to just zoom out and get a little perspective before we kind of enter that room and ask some questions about it. Sound all right? Now, for you and I, we may recognize Pentecost as um, this event where the Holy Spirit descends onto the apostles. And we may see this as a time where Uh, we become indwelt with the Spirit. And that's how Christ talks about it. Wait here and and I will send someone for you that will indwell you and you will go and do these works. And the Pentecost, the pente in there is is the Greek word for 50th. So it's the 50th day from what, maybe? Resurrection. 50 days from Easter, resurrection. 50 days from Passover, And so this is also a holiday that originally is celebrated in Judaism. So let's talk about that. Because in Judaism, they recognize this not only as these 50 days since Pentecost, or I'm sorry, since, since Passover. They recognize this as a feast of first fruits. The feast of first fruits, which is the end of a second harvest season. 
So there's these three feasts of first fruits. And this is the second one. And this is the second of three. The first one's big. The second one's a little bit bigger. And the third one's really big. And so if you want to, like, chew on that imagery for a second, it might matter in a moment. It may come back up in a moment. And this first fruits is a time where thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims get together in Jerusalem. And, I mean, the reason they're talking about maybe they're drunk on wine is because they're finishing the barley season. And some of them are thinking, well, maybe they're already, like, enjoying their harvests. But it's also 9 a.m. in the morning, so it kind of paints a picture that way. And you could think of this, yeah, you could think of this as a big festival. It's a harvest festival. It's a time that we're coming together to celebrate. There's going to be like 50,000 people in Boulder tomorrow to celebrate. You know, some of them drunk on wine. Yeah, some racers probably drunk on wine. That's how that race kind of goes. The first fruits in Hebrew is a word that's, that's translated the promise of more to come. And the whole point of this, this festival is to gather your first fruits, which is the sprouting of something new, the sprouting of the next season, the wheat season the sprouting of those earliest evidences of life. And they're gathered together, and they are taken to the temple, and they're offered as a promise of something more to come. And what is built into this imagery is this belief that there is something else to come is that there is something else to look forward to, is there is something in the future that's going to also sustain us, that's also going to matter. It's a trust that that's the direction we're heading. Now, this passage uh, that we are reading about is in Acts. Um, Who wrote the book of Acts? Popularly understood like as Luke, who also wrote the gospel according to Luke. So Acts is, in a a sense, a continuation of that account. Luke is a record of how God organized the salvation of all through the life, death, resurrection of Christ. And Acts is a record that kind of begins there with the ascension of Jesus, and then continues the story to give us just a little bit of context. Now, what did Luke do professionally? What was he? He's a physician. He was an MD. Maybe. Some kind of physician. You know? There's good physicians and bad physicians in today's world. I assume there were good physicians and bad physicians then, too. Where Luke fell and all that, we don't know. Uh, But we do know one thing about physicians. 
we know that their focus is not on penmanship. You can, like, never read a doctor's note. (laughs) Their focus is on the details. The details of something that that speak to something more significant that's going on. That's what their mind and eye, how it works. That's what they're looking for. And so Luke, too, is sharing a couple details for us in that passage that are profoundly significant for what it means outside of that room that they experienced what it looks like in your normal life. Now, wind, when we read about wind, and it reads this, when the day of Pentecost came, because it's already occurring, because it's practiced in the, Ju- in the Judaic pr- tradition, they're all together in one place. These are the disciples, and they're told by Jesus, go to Jerusalem and be together and just wait there for me. Wait there to receive a power that will propel you onward. Hey, before you go out and tell all these people and witness to all these individuals around the world, go there and wait. And wait for a helper to come. And that's what they're doing there in a room together. They are all together. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, the word wind in the Old Testament can be interchanged throughout the Old Testament with spirit or breath. And so as Luke pens this on a prescription pad of some kind, as he pens this work and he talks about this wind entering the room, filling the room, he uses this word that's interchangeably written about and spoken as wind, as breath, as spirit. And to a Jewish audience, they would hear this and immediately begin thinking about some stuff. They would begin thinking about where else wind and breath and spirit is mentioned, and is there any kind of importance between these two things? So I thought we could look at a couple of them, just to get us to think in this Context. We do read, and these are both from Genesis. In Genesis 1, we read this. We read, And the earth was without form. It was void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit, the wind, the breath of God moved upon the face of the water. So Luke's writing this, and to a listener, they're hearing wind, the wind entered the room. But they might be also considering, okay, where else is wind mentioned in Scripture as early as creation? And what might it be expressing? Again, in chapter 2, we read, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath, the spirit, the wind of life. And the man became a living being. He became a bag of dust, probably, is what this sounds like. He became a bag of dust. A bag of dirt. Dirt bag, probably. (laughs) 
uh, which would be kind of like a fun camp trip name. Come with us in July, we're on a dirt bag trip. But they became a bag of dirt by this breath, this power. And so he's immediately associating the wind that the apostles are experiencing with God's presence. God's presence moved upon the face of the water. God is present in that. God breathed into the dust. He's present in the breath. And then he talks about fire. On a holiday where we light things on fire. And this imagery might return us to events in in Scripture that also speak to God's presence within that fire. We might think about the burning bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Concerning, I'd be concerned, I'd be a little suspicious. So Moses thought, I will go over and see that strange sight. Which makes me think, what in the what? Maybe he's drunk. Just like these other people are saying to the apostles. What in the what? That's not my response. That doesn't make any sense. Why the bush does not burn up when the Lord saw that he had gone over and looked. God called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. God called to him from within the fire. God called to him. Think of the pillar of fire that led Israel. This is how we read about it in Exodus. By the day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. The Lord went in a pillar of fire. Are we, are we tracking? Like, so when we hear this wind enters the room and then a tongue of fire, Luke's on to something. Luke's hoping to communicate something really significant. Lastly, think about Mount Sinai, and this has some good overlap. This is in Exodus. Then Moses brought the people from among the tents to meet God. They stood at the base of the mountain. Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord came down upon it in fire. Coincidentally, the Feast of Weeks that everyone is gathering in Jerusalem for is in celebration also of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai receiving the Torah from the fire that's kind of built in to this scene. So they're in a room together and a violent wind enters the space and fills the space and then a tongue of fire appears. And I I have no idea what that tongue of fire looks like, but we've all seen movies, right? I don't know what it looks like, but something is there, and this fire emerges, and then it separates, is what we read, and then it hovers and settles above each apostle. What Luke's pointing at here is he's talking about The wind that's in the room is God. God's presence is there. That's the way the Old Testament authors talked about it. Whenever they use the word, it's ruach in Hebrew. Whenever they use this 
breath, wind, spirit, what they're talking about is God's presence. He's saying God's present in the wind. And then this tongue of fire emerges and then goes and settles above everyone's head. And he's saying God's present in the fire, just as he's always been present in fire. Now, a short adjacency. Where else is God present in the Old Testament that we kind of traditionally understand? We talk about him being present in the temple, the temple King David designed and King Solomon built. That's a different story. We, and, we, and we traditionally look at the temple, as le- at least this is how it is treated in the Old Testament, as home to God. Or at the very least, the, I don't know, the space between earth and heaven, where they overlap, wherever that Vin thing is. That's how they consider the temple. God's present there, too. And the temple is reflective of the garden. And we're just holding all these things. Relevance is a bit away. The temple is just reflective of the garden. And there's all this parallelism in the creation of the garden account and the creation of the temple. You know, Eden was created over the course of seven speeches over seven days. And the temple was commemorated, consecrated over these seven days and seven speeches. The Israelite people and priests, Levites, they were told, hey, go tend to that space. Go keep that space because God is there. Because he's there with us. And that's also the instruction that God gave the first humans. Tend the garden. Keep the garden. I am here. We are here together. So we look at this, we look at wind, we look at fire, we look at temples. And God is present within these things. Eden, side note, Eden translation is delight. And so he's looking at whether it's the Eden, perhaps that's the intention of the temple, but it's the presence of God and delight. What Luke's talking about is God's residence. He's talking about where God takes up residence, Platt Park, right? our neighborhoods. He talks about how where, where God takes up residence historically in wind and fire in the temple, and he's also talking about where God takes up residence in people. And we know of people in the Old Testament where God took up residence and empowered them in a unique way. Think of Joseph and dreams. That's God's empowerment, vitality. That's kind of the Spirit's nature, vitality. You know, people are bringing Joseph their dreams. I'm dreaming about grapes. Good news. I'm dreaming about baskets of bread. Bad news. Right? Or cattle. Mixed review. Like, we got to wait and see how this one plays out. Think about Daniel. 
the people, are taking upon God's presence. Think of the prophets. That's what we think of when we think about the nature of God's presence within some people. And, we're, and God has given them his perspective on history. And he's taking up residence with the prophets. And so then when we bump into the apostles in this room in Jerusalem with tongues of fire, we see this as God's presence taking up residence within individuals. Within his people. Luke's tapping into this Old Testament theme that keeps repeating and repeating and repeating. Luke's point is that God's presence is going to take up residence where it pleases. And he's talking now about it's done the wind, the fire, the temples, and now it's taking up residence in little temples. Like you and I. These smaller temples. We read about this in Acts. It says, but you will, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. That's how Luke puts it in chapter 1 of Acts. He says, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And interestingly enough, all those places are together at this time. It's just interesting to think about. They are already there. Just beautiful. Now, why does any of this matter, I suppose, right? Why does any of this matter about anything? <sighs> Pentecost offers us an opportunity. That's what we celebrate. It offers us opportunity to just consider what is it, how is it that God's love in me is expressed in the world? In the same way that this love of God is expressed in the apostles. And the point of the Spirit, the point of the pneuma, the point of his presence in my life is what? It's to guide me in love. The love of God, the love of each other, the love of ourselves. It's to guide us in that direction. And so we might ask ourselves, where in the landscape of my life is expressive of God's love. And here's the beautiful part about this whole imagery event occurring over the, this festival, this First Fruits Festival, is that the image we get is that it doesn't need to be this super profound expression. Sometimes that's what we think about. Like, what's your spiritual gift? And then go be the best or something of this. You know, we hear like, oh, my, my spiritual gift is mercy. Mine is not, by the way. Um, but we could say, you know, what's the fullest expression of that gifting? Like a Mother Teresa? And go do that. And we, we kind of look at that as like the model. And we can kind of confuse it in that sense. 
Because the, the feast of first fruits is saying we take the youngest expression of something. We take the earliest expression of something. And then we offer it back in belief that there's something to come. And so when we think about God's activity in us, in the world, we, we sometimes get stuck thinking, well, how, it's got to be this, something big or profound when it can be really young. It can be really inconsequential. It can look rather simple or easily disguised. And it's just a series of those. I bump into the first fruit, and I return it and offer it back to him. And that's how the Spirit is talked about. Whenever we talk about God, namely the Spirit, all the words we use to talk about the Spirit are at best an approximation, right? Are best an approximation. That's why people talk about the Spirit as the cloud of unknowing. Or, 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 or the, the witness of, of all, or the, or the first fruits of everything, is how the Spirit gets talked about. Because it's such a mysterious expression of God. And we can get stuck in that mystery if we enter it with too much mind space. If we enter it trying to think about, well, what does this make sense? I need this whole event, the thing, the expression, the youngest expression of God in my life to make sense to me. It might not at first. It might not ever. (sighs) And it doesn't need to. See, as as humans, we're always trying to, this thing is showing up in life. What in the what is going on here is how it's put in this passage. What is going on here? Does anyone have those moments? Am I the only person where we go, what in the what is this about? We bump into things, moments, that we might ask, what in the what could this be about? But we don't need to make sense of it. And that's all right. We take it, and just like the feast of first fruits, we offer it in trust and belief that Something more is to come. And we don't need to know what that is. And it will likely look different than you could imagine anyway. And we release it back to him, trusting that even the first fruits, even the sprouting of something of the Spirit, is his work, as will be the next one and the one after this. We might end here. We might. We'll see. Um, Paul puts it this way. These, these, he's, talking, he's talking about the Spirit's activity in your life. And this is the way he puts it in 1 Corinthians. He says, There are a variety of gifts by the same Spirit. And sometimes what we do is we take an inventory 
and we say, well, then I'm this. And if it's helpful, then yes, yes. Nowen talks about it this way. He authored a book called The Wounded Healer. It's fun. It's less than 100 pages. And he says, when the imitation of Christ, right, which is what we're all about, which is the point of what we're doing, to grow in our image bearerness of Christ, our expression and reflection of Christ. When the imitation of Christ does not mean to live a life like Christ, but to live your life as authentically as Christ lived his, then there are many ways and forms in which someone can be a Christian. And that's fun to think about. It's fun to think about because it makes us think, well, maybe my expression of Christ in the world is a little different than the other 7.8 billion people on earth (laughs) on this green-blue planet traveling through space at 34,000 miles an hour. (laughs) It might just look a little different. So this Pentecost... Perhaps we ask ourselves, where is God's presence in activity already? Where is it in its even earliest, youngest expression? Bursting forth? Where might I notice it in the normal, ordinary, and everyday life and experience? And whether it ends up looking like Elisha (laughs) or Deborah or Miriam, it's It's our own expression of Christ in this world. And if you ever ask yourself the question, what in the what, you're in good company. You're in good company. If it ever feels a little bit like, man, I gotta be drunk to do that again. (laughs) If it ever feels like, I wonder where that's emerging from. That thing seems a little beyond me. You might be Noticing something. I haven't, I think this, I haven't had that thought before. Have you said these things out loud? Huh. I wonder if that's my thought (laughs) to begin with. And when it comes to harvesting, We celebrate. We celebrate the earliest fruits, the earliest expressions of something, the earliest showing of something, and we simply return it. And we offer it to him, trusting in its first fruit, trusting in the promise of something to come, whatever that might be as well. And we've talked about this a bit before here, but it's this sense of, like in in the same way that God comes in wind and fire and however he wants to come, (laughs) God comes however he wants to come, we get to jump into that territory and just enjoy the however he wants to come, which could be different than how I think he should come but we also get to participate in it, of his with 
this to come. And we don't have to make sense of it. If you're ever struck by activity in your life that you can't make sense of, what in the what? Maybe they're drunk. <laughs> what in the what? We can just return it to him. If I need to understand this, I assume I'll bump into its understanding. This thing in my life, it doesn't need to make sense. It just needs to matter. And all of it just happens to matter. Yeah. You pray with me? Holy Trinity, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all that you're up to in and around each of us in our normal, ordinary, and everyday lives. May we believe in your presence and activity in our life. And might we recognize or notice, perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the first time in a long time, of that presence and activity in our life. And Lord, might you give us the strength to yield to that presence and activity in our life. We love you and we trust you. It's in your holy and precious, precious name we pray. Amen? Amen.